Hi, and welcome to Thinking With, a long-form, unpolished conversation. I'm Kyle, an architect and artist. And I'm Kat, an artist and filmmaker. In this season, we're thinking with Chris Krause. Join us in our nine-part discussion on I Love Dick, a book by Chris Krause, and a TV show by Joey Soloway and their ensemble team, starring Catherine Hahn and Kevin Bacon. We highly recommend that you watch along with us. Check out each TV episode and then come back to the corresponding podcast to hear our film analysis and personal discussions that use parallels from our own lives to help us understand this masterpiece by Chris Krause. Check out the book if you haven't read it yet. It features a lot in our upcoming episodes. Here's a quick recap of episode two, The Conceptual Fuck. Chris and Silver have a passionate romp around the bedroom, fueled by Chris's letter writing and obsession with Dick. Chris tries to assuage Silver's conflicted feelings about her desire's impact on their relationship. Then Chris drops in on the course Dick is teaching, showing the depths of her awkwardness as she tries to solicit his feedback on her film. When he says it's not his thing, Chris fires off her own critique of his work in retaliation. Dick rejecting her work sends Chris on a spiraling rant, which Devin gets to witness and absorb while fixing the fridge. Meanwhile, Silver is doing his best to charm the feminist formalist artist Toby, who sees right through his backhanded compliments and calls him out on his awfulness. Chris's manic energy inspires Devin to embark on their own art project. We also see that Chris has sparked Dick into making new work as well. And we end the episode by seeing Chris readying the letters she's written for delivery to Dick. Starting recording straight away means I will need to have my tea ready, my headphones <laughs> ready, my... <laughs> I had the same issue. I was running around trying to find a bloody hot water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> so you got you got through episode two? I might have watched it three times yesterday. <laughs> I watched it a, a second... I watched it earlier in the week and then I watched it a second time yesterday. It was like quite a short episode, it felt like. Yeah, it did. It felt like it was doing a lot in a short space of time. I also um, ended up watching it the third time with Estella online as well. So she, I just wanted to see what someone else who's had a similar kind of art experience to me, how she found it. And it was basically the same mm. thing, hysterical and really cringy. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, I'm I'm really really struck by how how divergent the um the the show is from the book now. Like once you get into like episode two, there are all these characters. There's this narrative mm -hmm. arc that's happening, um, mm -hmm. and it still has the I don't know what you think about this, but I think it still has the mm. spirit of the book, mm. like hugely. But it's definitely now a TV series that is inspired by the book rather than following the book. Completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I had forgotten, other than just absolutely loving it, I had forgotten so much about the series and mm -hmm. maybe particular scenes kind of come to mind. But then I read the book and 
felt the exact same way. Like, wow, this is like, they're definitely their own things. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the show, like, cause I did it in reverse order. Um, now going back to the show, it definitely feels like it's, it's caught the essence of the book and it's tried to, I, I think do something mu- much cooler than just try to replicate it, which is like, take, take what it's trying to do and then use the new form to push it into new areas. Um, yeah, I agree with you for sure. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think it, I think was necessary because they're not setting it in 1999 when the book came out, they're setting it now. So it needs to have, uh, yeah. it needs to have current concerns as well as staying I don't know within the within Chris Krause's kind of original intention for the book. I think I think it's successful so far. Um, I spent a lot of my time watching it, feeling really nervous about what what was about to happen. Yeah, <laughs> it's super awkward and super. Um, I don't know. I, yeah, well, should should we get into it? Have you got sort of any yeah. um, anywhere that you want to start in particular? Uh, I mean, I'm pretty open if you, if you have somewhere, um, I, I, I mean, I think what you were saying earlier makes an interesting entry point, which is like, I was really noticing how, how much fun it is to get other characters perspective, Mm -hmm. um, that we don't really get in the book. And I think the characters are really cool and fascinating. So I'm like, yeah. I don't know. I'm excited about <laughs> rediscovering this because, like, I don't, I don't actually know what's gonna happen, and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm just very, I, I, I've, it's, it's, it's like we get this much broader, um, broader spectrum of female experience than just Chris Krause's. Um, yeah, that was something that I noted as well. That it. We, we start to get um, a variation on the different kinds of like female or gender non-conforming sort of ways of being an artist rather than just mm. the, the single perspective, which I, I really enjoyed. I found, um, I guess something, something that I, maybe it's worth kind of just going through like the front, from the front end of the episode to the back and just cool. talking about what what happens at each stage because sure um again there are sort of divergences from the book that i think are interesting as well um i found the introduction the intro so funny i was howling I was howling with the two what who i was assuming are italian um film critics who are choosing films for like this film festival and yes <laughs> and they come across they're watching her tape so we, we we enter into the episode watching chris's film that she has made called um is it sylvie and Ger- geronimo or jerome jerome i think yeah <laughs> um, and they're like what is this piece of shit um and then they, they pull it out and it's basically like, the <laughs> line that she says of like what something like i'm i'm drowning in vagueness or, or fa- is it vagueness or fakeness? I couldn't. I couldn't quite. I thought it was vagueness, vagueness, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, "What is this shit?" And then they're like, "Oh, um, the oh, it's the film that we that that we put through." 
um, that didn't get through because of the, the song. She didn't get the rights to the song. And then they go on to go, but that song is so catchy. <laughs> and whilst I found it super funny, I, I also thought that perhaps this was another version of the, like, the, um, the kind of Rashomon perspective that we talked about last week, which mm. is that we, um, we already know that the selectors thought that the film was good because it got accepted into the Venice Biennale, right? Like it's already been rated. So what I wondered is whether this was actually just another version of like Chris's version of what was happening. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. I, I, like, uh, and and that got me thinking. It, that's a lens that I found myself watching this episode through the whole way through. Was I think that a lot of this is Chris's perspective mm. when, when we're not getting uh, like a direct feed into a different character. Right. When, when there's a kind of dissonance because there's this um, there's this moment towards the end where we see Dick read like we see D- Dick sitting on his. Um, on his porch, cowboy styles, and he says her name, Chris Krause. But right. we only ever yes. see that through the perspective of her going through her letters. So every time, like, right. I, found, I found when I was watching the the episode with Estella, I was wondering if she was reading it as a straight narrative. But uh, like, like, was uh-huh. Dick actually thinking about Chris at this time? Because I just wasn't, I wasn't seeing it like that, having kind mm. of watched it a few times, I guess. Um, and then later on, you get the, um, you get the character Devin, who's been super inspired <laughs> to write this, write this play, <laughs> obviously about Chris and her like manic monologue about women in film. Um, but then I, I, I thought about this as it's quite exciting because the film, sorry, the, 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 the television show actually formalizes that um, uh, formalizes that Rashomon style of um, like getting multiple perspectives and truths and untruths from different characters. The, the, the idea of having a play of Chris within the TV series, which is of the book by Chris, actually i find quite exciting because it starts to really formalize that that style of of yes we are getting different perspectives on this character and on the events um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that, that's held by the container of a play written by another character which i thought was quite cool mm. yeah i really like that I, I i totally see that now but i, I didn't experience it that way um but that's cool yeah it, it makes total sense especially the part the, the parts the, those little images we get of dick kind of there's something about them that i think you're right is um has a almost an etherealness that makes it seem like more of an imagined thing than a reality yeah yeah i just i just find that the way that we are shown how dick is so dismissive of her and is so dismissive of everybody and is so dismissive of art um, and ideas uh, and hierarchies and all of that sort of stuff that he couldn't possibly be thinking so deeply of her in other yes. scenes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I still am trying to get my head around 
that because he's he's only he's dismissive to a point like he oh there's Rocco um, oh, I can hear it it's squirrel time <laughs> like he's not there's something about her that he's not just like my class is full get out of here yeah, he does. He he gets rid of the class in order to then exactly. spend a lot of time being dismissive of her. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. But I yes. wanted to give you a flip side to that um, that scene where he's that that, that it. yeah. Oh god, that that tragic, um, you know, awful scene of her wanting to show him her film and him just taking you know, seven seconds to look at it. And he's like, that's, you know, I'm not the audience for this, that this isn't for me. Mm-hmm. Is that in the book, it's not Chris who shows Dick her film. It's Dick who shows Chris and Sylvia his film. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like the book does something entirely different. And um, she says, this is, I'm quoting from the book here. Um, Dick plays them a video of himself dressed as Johnny Cash commissioned by English public television he's talking about earthquakes and upheaval and his restless longing for a place called home Chris's response to Dick's video though she does not articulate it at the time is complex as an artist she finds Dick's work hopelessly naive Yet she is a lover of certain kinds of bad art, art which offers a transparency into the hopes and desires of the person who made it. Good cash cat. <laughs> Fuck. So the TV series takes that and flips it. Um, and I think it flips it in a way uh, in order to flip it again later on when you've got the scene with Sylvia and the young redheaded uh, female artist. Yes. So you've got these you've got these flips and mirrorings going on, where um, mm-hmm. like Dick is Dick is saying, um, and I really want to get into this idea of audience with you because we've spoken about this a few times. But Dick is like, I'm not the audience for this, and Chris just keeps like for this type of thing. Yeah, yeah. She she keeps taking on, um, you know, on his like that that real kind of toxic masculine way of of like engaging with her um but then you see in the flip scene later on where <laughs> where Sylvia is trying to take this young female artist down a peg or two and she turns around to him and she calls him on it and she says you're just awful <laughs> and I could not stop laughing because it was like it was the it was the response that I wanted Chris to give to Dick mm, mm-hmm. yes Yes. And we finally get that like kind of catharsis yes. later on. Yes. Yes. Um, Completely. Mm-hmm. No, that's a that's a great um way of explaining all of that. I think that's right. And because there is there's such an ele- like and and Catherine Hahn plays it so well, like Oh yeah. Just the awkwardness of how she sits on the floor and is just every part of that is so good where she's just so like doing it the exact wrong way like Mm -hmm. so caught up in herself and what she's gonna get out of this and and super grasping so grasping (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
Yeah. And then the um, formalist feminist mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is, you know, we get the, it, it, that scene is kind of broken up in two where they're walking and she's sort of like pointing out things and then they get into the cemetery and she's kind of like skipping around. Like and, a little fairy. It was like, yeah. a, chi- like mm-hmm. a child. In Completely in her own space. Mm-hmm. Couldn't give a fuck about Silver. Like, doesn't need him at all, but mm-hmm. clearly he is under some really false impressions yeah. about that. Um, mm-hmm. That This is actually one of the scenes that I do remember, is her saying that. It's such a powerful slap in the face to where expectations are kind of, like, pushing um, mm-hmm. the, what that scene would typically be, and... You don't like she's she's got such a good poker face too about it that um the suddenness of that is like oh of course like yeah 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 she's i think the thing is she's always been in control of herself yes and self-contained exactly. yes um i thought that the way that he sylvia tried to take her down was really fascinating because he he first asks her what you know what is it that you do like what is your practice and she says that i i look at hardcore porn without judgment and then i change it into its sort of shapes a form you know she formalizes it and silver actually tries to do like he tries to reduce her down to age and and beauty Mm. and kind of like a perversity of her own art practice hmm. he tries to use her art practice mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. reduce yep. her down to form in order to completely degrade her and debase the work that she's doing what's your project about i look at hardcore porn without judgment so i reduce it to its shapes and they give you a guggenheim for that You're such a child. You're just so young. I mean, why are you obsessed with porn? Why, why? I mean, my God, look at you. You're so beautiful, so achingly beautiful. You're awful. And she just sort of steps into that and she doesn't rather than kind of needing then needing his approval because that is a one of those kind of classic um bro dating techniques of like completely yeah Mm -hmm. negging yeah completely degrading someone so that they are out of any kind of position of power and then they turn to the man in order to try and get some power back by needing approval she Mm -hmm. just sidesteps it she just says Mm -hmm. it how is it how it is you are awful that's that's exact i mean that's exactly what has been revealed Mm, that he is he is awful yeah and i again there are there are touches of this in sylvia in the book like particularly when um there's there's a there's a sort of scene that chris is describing of them being at a party that joseph kosuth is at Right. And and there is there is some of yep. that kind of uh, like uh, I don't 
don't know what's the word like um dynamic going on but this is where the, I think the TV show really departs is that it uses Sylvia as sort of like this a mirror uh, in, in quite interesting ways. He's, he's an unlikable character in, in a lot of ways. Um, we, I think we were talking about there is a likability about him in the first episode. <laughs> but in the second episode, I've just like find him repulsive. <laughs> I, I, that found me, I was like thinking, okay, no, this is why it took me watching it and then reading the book before I felt any affection towards Silver. <laughs> um, I think there's another, I think there's another layer of it too, which is that, um, this is how I read it at least, which is like his, you can see exactly what you laid out, what he's doing in terms of trying to assert this, this dominance and they give you Guggenheim for that. And, mm, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're such a child. And, but then when he, his last line about you're so achingly beautiful, he delivers it in a way that he, all over his face is like, God damn, I'm charming. Yeah. 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 It's not just that he's like doing the standard male art thing. But he's he's so self-satisfied about what he's done and how charming he is. Like, oh, and and yeah, I, I, I just it's so overwhelming how nauseating that is. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and it I think it it resonates with me in like in a couple of different forms uh, mm-hmm. where like I've had experiences of someone trying to like really undermine me at the same time as being charming with it um, mm. and finding that just a really um, discombobulating experience because it's just an experience of dissonance where someone is like ripping your heart out at the same time as complimenting you and it, it all it, all it does is destabilize you. Um, yes, yes. So it was really satisfying to see this young woman turn around and and call it how it is. You are awful. Um, because it was almost like having the opportunity to recognize it myself mm-hmm. and to get some kind of, um, I don't know, some kind of like healing from it to see mm-hmm. someone else call it mm-hmm. uh, in, in a situation where I never felt like I had the confidence to call it because someone mm-hmm. always... Uh, usually an older man in that scenario always pulled the power card on me. Uh-huh. So it was, yeah, terribly satisfying scene. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. Delicious. Ooh. Yes, this is the whole, I mean, that's, that's such a huge part of, I think, the satisfaction in a lot of scenes from this, from both the book and the, and the show, um, is that, you know, how how cathartic it is to like see what is typically under the table being like brought out into the light um Mm -hmm. yeah no it's really powerful um so it, it was great to see it was great to see that version of a female artist moving through life next to chris's version of a female artist moving through life next to 
Devon's version of an artist moving through life. And I, do, I don't know if, um, mm-hmm. if Devon is like female identifying. She sort of comes across as, uh, as, mo- as more of an alternative kind of form to that. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't know how to call mm-hmm. the character Devon yet, but that is another alternative version of being an artist um, yes. in, this, in this universe. So non-dominant it, male yeah, artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So it's just a pleasure to see that there's not one type of being a woman in in this episode. Um, mm-hmm. It was just so. It was so funny. It was just yeah. so, so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Rocco's got Squirrel the chipmunks. Time. Squirrel time. Um. Yeah, and, and it's. It's great to be able to like inhabit all of them. Yeah. You know, like I, I, I totally related to, to Devin, like smoking some pot, dancing around, being so <laughs> fucking excited about what she was doing, calling her friends over, being like, this is, the, this is some insane shit, clear your schedules. And they're like, what are you doing? She's like, well, it's about uh, <laughs> this couple, actually this girl who's like trying to figure out herself. <laughs> And we know exactly who it's going to be about. And I'm just projecting yeah. into future episodes. I hope that we get to see Chris being married back to herself and Sylvia mm-hmm. being mar- married back to himself. Um, mm-hmm. and it's almost like the characters I'm hoping will get to see what we are getting to see is this mm-hmm. incredible mirroring um, mm-hmm. and sort of ref- like these reflections and refractions. Um, and also seems like this is this is like not just a mirror too but it's it's like it's fueled and energized by chris's like rant that she has when devin is fixing the fridge yeah 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 you know? yeah it's just it's a really good rant it was a really good rant <laughs> and i having then watched episode one and two back to back again i realized that this that rant that that Chris has when she gets back from, you know, this really deflating experience with with Dick, because obviously she's like feeling all horny and sexy, and she's mm-hmm. had this kind of imaginary relationship with him and with Sylvia, um, mm-hmm. and then this this experience is completely deflating and not what she what she what she hoped for. So when mm-hmm. she, she comes back to her house. She ha- she has this kind of like spewing like of bile about film and, and women in film. And she starts reeling off this list of male directors that she prefers, which mm-hmm. is in complete opposition to the list mm-hmm. of female directors that she reels off in defense of women filmmakers and in defense of herself in the first episode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she starts with Spielberg. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then ends with um, <clears throat> Sofia Coppola. Her critique of her is her her hair. <laughs> it's her hair, I know she's just and it's it's awful. It's absolutely awful. But at the same time, I just I felt for her because uh, like yeah, it was this crushing monologue about when something is perfect and blooming and beautiful in your head like we get to see mm-hmm. we get to see Devon in this state of of creation when it's this big giant idea and it's exciting um and then she goes on to talk about again this 
crushing experience of making something and it being compared to every other similar of similar th- likeness uh, out in the world um, and it really got me thinking this is like a little bit of a bouncing around here bear with me yeah <clears throat> I used to get really fucked off when um, I would hear people say I went to this gallery I saw this show it was such shit and then they would base they would judge every other potential artwork or exhibition um like they would they would base those experience any other experience that they had with art on that i don't go to exhibitions because art is shit i saw Mm -hmm. one i saw one exhibition and now all art is tainted for me and there's no kind of uh no understanding of nuance that there are different kinds of art there are like art Mm -hmm. like art is a huge universe with lots Mm -hmm. of different things that inhabit this universe but um and and it used to really drive me wild because I'd be like, you could see, you can see a movie, right? We all see uh-huh. movies that we hate, but that doesn't yeah. mean that we decide that we hate all movies based on our one experience of a shitty cowboy film that we didn't sure. like. Or yeah. food or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. why is it that art gets that yeah. stigma? Um, mm. And here, she's kind of flipping that a little bit. She's kind of talking about, well, why is why is my film being compared to every other film out there why can my film not just be judged against its peers um which is an experimental feminist kind of filmmaking why is my film getting judged against i don't Mm -hmm. know jurassic park or (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah um so i really i really felt for her in that regard because it's it's a it's again it's a it's a dissonance of um of expectation i think um, there's a dissonance of knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, she started by saying, I, I forget what the filmmaker she said was, who was like the top feminist filmmaker uh, who's like impenetrable. Maya Darren. Do you know Maya um, Darren? I, I've... <sighs> Do you know, I have to admit, I, I only know of Maya Darren because I avidly watched um, a film by James Cousins, no, Mark's Cousins, sorry, called Women Make Film. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it came out during the, at the beginning of the pandemic, actually. Um, and it's this incredible overview of, of women filmmakers, but not, it's not done, it's not done like, biopically about their films it's done through theme uh-huh. so you might get landscape or plot or night or death cool. and it rolls through these different films so so the only reason i know about maya darren is because she's come up in this the series yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i don't know her very well and i couldn't right. i couldn't say whether i found her impenetrable i think i find most experimental film and i'm an experimental filmmaker quite impenetrable <laughs> i think it comes with the territory yeah yeah i think and i think that's part of what she's sort of complaining about is like wait a minute i'm part of this type of filmmaking that has a very like un um <laughs> unenjoyable aesthetic to it you know <laughs> and why does she get told that she's incredible exactly and exactly. i am completely irrelevant yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got totally. That. Totally, I totally feel for her in that regard. Whereas you can see, 
Devin watching her in the scene just just being like oh my god you are incredible you are fascinating you are (laughs) literally losing your mind in front of me yeah um yeah but i yeah i felt i felt for both of them because i recognized what was happening on both sides of that i've been on both sides of that i think I think I interrupted your train of thought about oh, a while ago. <laughs> you had started talking about um, sort of one bad exhibition spoiling people's taste for art um, as part of a sequence of things or have we have we worked through that oh i think we've worked through that that was okay that was just yeah. a thought that i had um yeah i i had this really weird experience of um of watching a film the night before watching this yeah where my my mate leslie had sent me a message saying hey do you fancy watching a film um tonight and i was like yeah cool i'd love to watch a film and then i found out later on that i needed to be writing about it for her it was sort of part of her phd research so i was watching the thing um which was like john carpenter's kind of like kooky sci-fi film and free writing while i was watching this film to to hand over to leslie because she's doing a lot of work around um i think there was there was about four of us who were doing this with her um so she's doing a work on kind of collaboration and and building this building this kind of poem around interrelationships and experience and mm. um but the experience of free writing whilst watching this horror film completely I, I had this hangover from it when i was watching i love dick and i mm-hmm. found myself free writing and kind of free associating um and finding it really hard to get out from underneath that particular technique of watching a film so i think that that's where the um where that association association with um remembering being pissed off about how people engage with art on a really kind of um in a really unnuanced nuanced way i think yeah yeah that's interesting the free writing while watching um process yeah that so when she's it's a, it's an interesting thing. The oh, I'm trying I'm trying to blanking on what I was gonna say. Something about the oh man. I hate when that happens. I lost it. Yeah. <clears throat> um. Was it something to do with the with the scene with Chris kind of waxing lyrical and losing your mind about art female filmmakers? Yeah, and that set like why am I not ju- being judged by this? Mm-hmm. set of rules um yeah i forget what i was gonna sort of add on to that but <clears throat> i wondered if that scene really it was kind of felt like i was watching someone really reveal their internalized misogyny mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I, I do feel like you know poor chris has to inhabit a lot of this as a character Mm-hmm. someone who's internalized this misogyny much like in episode one where she's trying to play the game um 
but is also ha- trying not to play the game and working through this internalized misogyny. Like I don't mm-hmm. know if we've we've necessarily seen her learn anything yet. We're just mm-hmm. sort of watching it unravel at the moment. Um, I actually watched a couple of Chris Krause's films yesterday. Oh shit, cat! Yeah, yeah. Nice. I just because we were because we were watching, we were seeing the, this this clip of. Um, yeah. Sylvie and, and Jerome and she's talking about how it feels to make films and I've in, in the book you know there is a lot of uh, there's a lot of conversation that, that Chris has with herself and relays about conversations with others about how she feels about being an artist so I just actually wanted to I wanted to see something first totally. I, I, like I wanted to know if Sylvie and Jerome was a fictional film it w- I, I'm pretty sure it is a fictional film I think yeah I think so too isn't that I think those are the names of the characters in so she's she says she's got like her um, other books I forget what their title one is something on anorexia yes. and but I think these are the characters names I think basically Silver and Chris turn into Sylvie and Jerome, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she kind of categorizes the three books as a trilogy. Gotcha. So it's, I think that's where it's kind of, yeah. And so that's where the because um when I was looking through her back catalog of films, there was never a film that seemed to inhabit this space. So I right. I was guessing that it must be a fictionalization of I Love Dick itself, like another another kind of fractal yeah. of it. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So that that makes a lot of sense, um, and it's it's interesting because there's so much written about I Love Dick, and there's it, you know it seems like the the books that talk about the difficulties of art and theory and and rhetoric and discourse have got a lot more attention than her actual artworks. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I would I would suggest the books are artworks in themselves they are part of a larger art or artistic pro like process or project um but the the films the films themselves i watched two i watched um traveling at night which is a 1991 um filmed on vhs film um about the underground railroad in in warren warrensburg in new york where she, you know, there's a bunch of white kids, predominantly white kids, who are being taken on a, um, a you know, a tour of, of this is what, this is what happened with enslaved peoples, <clears throat> in our area. And so Chris kind of uses, the. I don't know the the children's tour as a lens through which to kind mm-hmm. of look at this story herself. Um, and then the second one is also shot on VHS. It's called The Golden Bowl or Repression. And that seems to be a little bit closer to what's happening in the kind of parody film, um, Sylvia <laughs> Jerome, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a very, you know, again, reasonably impenetrable black and white shot. Looks like it might be shot on VHS or probably, probably a combination of that and 35 mil maybe. Um, black and white. Um, and it's a take on a, um, uh, I think it might be a, I think it's a Joyce film. Um, sorry, a, a Joyce book. Um, <clears throat> but there was it just wasn't a lot of writing around out there about these films. 
Mm. Um, so I thought, yeah, I just, I thought it was interesting to kind of see some of her work in relation to how her work was being fictionalized. Yeah, yeah, no, that is cool. I'd be interested in seeing those too. Um, well, yeah, what do you make of that? That the has she has she been making so after I lo- after she started really getting into writing has mm-hmm. she been making film? No, you know? so her last yeah. film was ninety six and it was made. Um, I think it's called Grace and Gravity, potentially. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. Yeah, so it was, it was made between New Zealand and the States as well. So there's a whole lot of like actors with my accent, which is quite entertaining when I had a look at the trailer. <laughs> but it does seem like her practice really flipped into being this 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 kind of written discourse that uh, you know the the process of letter writing and I love Dick and autobiography and auto theory uh, really became sort of potentially the main her main artistic output I guess um, but I think that the films are really important kind of fertile ground for her thinking and her experience of the art world which is what we're getting in the TV series yeah 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 I heard an interview with her um, I think it was a Louisiana Channel podcast um, and yeah it, it it was really interesting to hear her talking um, because we have so, like, I've got so many different versions of her oh, in my yeah. head as you're, you know, like, just to, like, I'm just, like, fascinated to see, like, where she is now and, like, what does she sound like? And mm-hmm. um, and now she's being, the, the person interviewing her, I mean, this is all from sound, but it, it, it sounded like this person interviewing her was kind of like a young aspiring feminist artist Mm -hmm. and um I don't know she's kind of frozen in time in 25 years ago in the book for me so it it was really interesting to see where she's kind of gone since then and like she she so the woman was asking her a lot about her writing um and what I actually found really interesting was the non-art stuff that she's been doing, which is she's like, you know, it's really hard to like make a living doing this. And so she's like, you know, I, what I do is like, I buy rundown apartment buildings and I find contractors who are sort of down on their luck. And she's talking about this guy who like had just gotten out of prison and because he had been convicted of a felony it he was it was impossible for him to get a job but that's sort of caught up in this paradox of he can he's on parole so he can be out of jail only if he gets a job but because he's a convicted felon he can't get a job oh, no. this catch 22 situation yeah, so yeah. she starts working with him and so in this kind of like interesting little aside i find this really interesting because mm-hmm. like it's the context like you Sure, if you're independently wealthy, like you don't need to f- figure out this essential component into being an artist. But everyone else is like trying to figure this shit out. Oh, and... eternally trying to figure <laughs> this shit out. Yeah, yeah. And I felt like a really, I felt like her 
artistic spirit was also being injected into that where this is a really interesting story of her working with this guy and sort of like having an activism lens about how she's trying to make a living um I don't know it's it's to me this is part of this whole package of like revealing the context and mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how important that is into for me for me to digest a story all those details are really important for me and create a much more whole relatable thing that I can attach my psyche to um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah I don't know that's it's just a little bit of a tangent but no, I think it's a good tangent because um, that that very thing I think we mentioned in our last conversation comes up in the book where she's very, very, very transparent about how they get by, how they make money, how they how she essentially pimps out Sylvain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of you know the him being on the um, on the the academic. Um, what's the word like the giving giving academic talks in exchange yeah. for money and, and things yep. like that and how how you know they're they're buying and selling and subletting properties in order to kind of keep this very fragile yeah. financial yeah. house of cards going S totally super uncool stuff like okay well this one has this stipend associated with it and you know <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly yeah but, and a lot but of it doesn't have to do with yeah. prestige it doesn't have to do with prestige it has to do with survival no. right yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But totally relatable. Um, and, and her, you know, connecting back to her sort of ranting spiral and her insecurities about all this, like extremely relatable. Um, and, and as you as you pointed out, like great in contrast to the formalist feminist unflappability and just rock steady confidence in herself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I, th I think is also quite unrealistic <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> because I you know as, as much as I, I I applaud that character turning around and saying to Sylvia you are awful and and naming it as such um how many uh artists young artists are ever in the position to be able to say that to someone who's older and, and in a more powerful position. Not that Silvera is necessarily in a more powerful position because he is an equal fellow to this character in the uh, at the at the institution that they've that they've got these fellowships at, but that he thinks that he has got more power. Because well, the, that's the unwritten the rules. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Say that he does. Yeah, mm -hmm. and he's immediately, you know. Uh, playing by the unwritten rules yeah yeah absolutely it's <laughs> um okay so also in this in the ranting scene there's quite a lot to unpack yeah. from it um i had to i had to stop pause and put subtitles on to catch this little phrase that she uses kind of directly after mm -hmm. she's completely ragging on Sophia Cobbler for her hair color. Mm -hmm. So Chris says, I'm invisible. I mean, looked at. And it's such a, it's such a quick little phrase that it's easy to miss. Um, but she's basically describing the male gaze. Mm -hmm. I'm invisible. I'm not seen for myself. I'm only ever seen through someone else's eyes, I'm being looked at. Um, mm -hmm. 
which I thought I thought was interesting that they managed to weave that in because she then goes on to sort of she 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 calls Maya Maya Deren the filmmaker um, and we're, we're also getting exposed to tiny little short um, fragments of another film by um, Chantal Ackerman throughout this mm-hmm. episode, which is the like the little black and white excerpts mm-hmm. of, a, of a woman speaking in French or Belgium yes. um, who's also writing letters. Yes. And they're sort of... So is that a real... That's a real... Those are real clips, right? Yeah, yeah. that's a, yep. those are real clips. Um, and I'll, yep. I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second. But, cool. Um, the so so what we're getting throughout like peppered throughout this episode is our examples of the female gaze like what it feels like to inhabit that space of being looked at and looking back at the people who are looking at you um so we're getting fragments of other filmmakers who are dealing with this type of storytelling um and this type of activism in their work um but uh, very much like what we spoke about in the last in our last conversation. Um, but the Chantal Ackerman was one of the was one of the women that Chris name drops in her list to Dick of amazing female mm-hmm. filmmakers. Um, mm-hmm. So this is a film called, and I I have got a terrible <laughs> French accent. Jetu uh, il l, and it's something like me you. Um, me, you, him, her, something, something mm-hmm. to that effect. Um, and it's it's a real film from 1974, and I think it's one of her fil- first films. So Chantal Ackerman um, went on to become renowned as a filmmaker who takes time, who makes you experience time. Um, so her films can be excruciating to watch because everything plays out in real time there's sort of a domesticity to it where you uh-huh. watch someone make a full meal and then they, they uh-huh. then the routine happens the next day and you watch the same thing this woman <laughs> do the same action um so uh jetu il l is um has some like super useful crossovers with i love dick and content because the the woman in the in the film spends a lot of time writing letters for two or three days um, so this, the, the letter writing content sort of makes a lot of sense in relation to I Love Dick. Um, but also the letter organizing in that film really relates mm-hmm. to I Love Dick later on in the episode where Chris is collating these letters to Dick in this kind of artistic bo- like presentational box that she mm-hmm. leaves in his office. Um, so Chantal Ackerman is a yeah she's a filmmaker who captures the female gaze i i think so you're constantly um you're constantly sunk into what it feels like to be a character i was watching a youtube clip on her yesterday where someone was someone at the museum of modern art was describing her work as like watching a thriller it's actually very uncomfortable Mm -hmm, there's a lot of mm -hmm. tension there's a lot of anticipation whilst fuck all is happening yes yes (laughs) And so she, she again is another example of what Chris is saying. My, my work sits within this canon. My work sits within really uncomfortable discourses to watch. Like long, long takes that people can't sit through. Why is it not legitimate? Right. Um, yeah. Yep. Just to provide a little yeah. bit more context there. This is great. Yes. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. yeah. um, I, I really wanted to unpick what has the TV show 
fictionalized what have they brought in from other artists work that are that is yes. you know what is what is real from from the world outside of the show um yeah i think they're doing a really really interesting layer or layering effect um yes i love it which is which also i find in the spirit of the letters from the book where some of the tangents she goes off on and sort of the the homages she pays to other artists are i love chris krauss is incredibly articulate yeah um and she's incredibly well versed in the world of art theory and and criticism and art history and you know social currency um and she spends a lot of time it's like revealed throughout the book you know she spends a lot of time not articulating this to anyone else just just to, between herself and Sylvia. Um, yes. and I yeah I just I I think it is interesting that I don't know that I, well, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to kind of find a sense of saying is that she is so articulate and that she yet she's not able to enact that articulateness in the world um like there's there's a really uh -huh. incredible breakdown of uh, a, an exhibition of um i think that an exhibition of paintings later on in the book um that is like kind of an inc incredible critique of this work and why you know why it's important um yes. but i think for the longest time the book got seen as autobiographical and a lot of the really kind of whip smart commentary in the book maybe got overlooked mm. um and I yeah. think that this is kind of playing out in the tv show as well yeah yeah which i i mean all of this for in my experience is like um she's able to unlock other people's artwork in her writing mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so like i'm reading these things and i'm like fuck i gotta look up who hannah wilkie is because this sounds amazing mm -hmm. and again like i'm looking at these images but without the words from chris i would not be seeing them the way i'm seeing them and i think this is i'm like reflecting back you, <laughs> your thought about like walking into an exhibition and sort of dicks reaction this isn't for me like i've had that you know and i i feel like um it's been this slow kind of unraveling of thinking this isn't for me <sighs> being this sort of starting to unravel I don't know over time to now feeling like somewhat ashamed about how confident I was in that this isn't for me thing being being in the fact that I didn't even know what it was and mm -hmm. um <clears throat> and now like how cool it is which I'm I'm actually actually want to talk to to you a little bit more like the, the idea of coolness keeps popping into my head um <laughs> but yeah so so i think this ties in a little bit to to what you're saying about like suddenly she, she started writing and like that is her art like her films kind of are 
not really talked about, but uh, you know, it's almost like she's this she's this integral like part of the microbiome that you need to digest the food. Like it, it's such an essential part of it for me and the way I've experienced it that I'm not like that's a that's a very she's unlocked so much artwork that would be dead to me um Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. it's almost it's collaborative in a way like it's it's she's has now a part in that artwork for me and the way I've experienced it um I wonder if there's some something in that I feel that a lot of particularly a lot of feminist work has it sort of has a a requirement for communal viewing or communal sort of experience where you you digest the work through relationship to others and the work Mm -hmm. um whereas often you know the I I don't want to set up a binary here that's maybe the more kind of like masculine abstractionist sort of paintings formalist paintings um of the 1960s and 70s era required the critic the all-knowing critic to disseminate knowledge about the artwork so they're two very different ways of of beginning to understand and inhabit the ideas and uh, of of these artists work um that's just me spitballing a little bit but i have often found that um they they require really different types of viewing and if you if you don't have those muscles already developed yep. it can feel like the work's not for you i find it excruciating sitting through um 1970s um mainstream feature films because the editing is it, like this like the shots take a really long time like the character development is allowed to roll out like i've become so sensitized to fast editing and storytelling yeah. and, and absorbing narrative that anything that's pre-1990s I find excruciatingly difficult to kind of absorb um, and so I think it, it, I think it's a viewership muscle um, yes and yes we we had this conversation last week before turning the kind of uh, before turning the recording devices on, shall yeah. we say, um, about audience and who are, who is our audience and and it being self-selecting and I think that part of that self-selection process is people deciding something isn't for them. Like is what Dick is what Dick is saying. This I'm not the audience for this work. Is that valid? Because it's something that we've we've thought about ourselves that we we you know we should have agency to choose what it is that we are um you know we're consuming but also being aware of what we're consuming often comes in a silo and has a lot to do with different kind of systemic inequalities and access issues i i think it's a i think it's complicated oh man well <laughs> said though yeah that's that's exactly right and yeah I, I in a way dick is being generous like he's he's he knows he's not gonna like this <laughs> and he opens it up and his you, it's like his eyes already starting to twitch like just with agony at, at how affronting this is to, to his sensibility and <laughs> yeah but he's you know he's still for him the seven seconds is a lot like he's given a lot to um 
to eat well, and watch and, that. And she's touching him at the same time as he's trying she's to... She's fucking run. touching his hair, exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excruciating. Um, and we get this kind of wonderful contrast later on in the film. Uh, in the, sorry, in the, I keep calling it a film. Um, it, it feels like a film. I, I'm, uh, you're it's up not, for that? Yeah. yeah, I'm up for that. <laughs> so, like, part of, part of Chris's kind of parting shot to insult him back in a way that equals her sense of offence um, is to pick out an artwork of his in the gallery. Yes. And to say, this is your artwork. It's a fucking brick. How are you supposed to feel anything about this? And he then dumps on her. <laughs> it's a straight line. Straight line is perfection. I, I was howling with yeah. laughter. I could yeah. not stop. Um, and I think the reason I found it so funny is that I just... It's so cliched, but it's a it's an it's acceptable language with which to talk about art. It's an acceptable, powerful language to kind of like uh, we've we've got years and years and years of reductionist, reductive, formalist ways of thinking about art, um, like utopian, pure puritanical kind of ways of engaging with artwork. So I was laughing because it's just it feels so outdated and old-fashioned so to be hearing that in 2022 was it was very very funny but what did you what did you think later on if we see dick encountering like walking through the landscape in his cowboy erotica style and he comes across the snake and, <laughs> and rather than going oh shit it's a snake and running away like normal people would he stands and he faces it he faces down the, sp the snake and he takes inspiration from the shape of the snake and he starts, <laughs> he starts picking up rocks and moving them through the landscape into this kind of serpentine shape based on the snake's shape and it's not a straight line. And it <laughs> it's sort of like he's sort of testing out these ideas of artistic perfection. I was, I was, I was laughing so hard because at the same time, as you know, I've been looking at these scenes of Dick through a lens of, it's not actually Dick, it's Chris's imagination of Dick. So her yes. feeling yes. like she's got yes. some kind of agency that yeah, she yeah, somehow yeah. influenced him to be engaged yeah. with something that's not the perfection of a straight line. That's a good reading. That's a good reading of it, totally, because it is kind of over the top and comical how that plays out. And he's like taking off his gloves, like he's like, literally like getting back in the dirt and yeah <laughs> i i found that scene fascinating too that um that sort of like critical jousting they were doing in the gallery mm -hmm. um and mm -hmm. totally relate to that from architecture school where uh, it's it's so fascinating like i was always so fascinated by the underlying current of the critique that was happening and how much um, personal shit was wrapped up in that and the the way people sort of take this impulse of insecurity or rage or jealousy or vendetta that then gets translated by our very clever brains into these particular words that are acceptable in the critique arena but mm -hmm. it's 
just from a pure like if a dog was sitting there observing there the dog would know okay this person doesn't like this person like that's obvious um <laughs> i don't know what the hell else is going on here but that's obvious um yeah <laughs> and um yeah it, it's it's so she's obviously very hurt and she's retaliating by oh, so hurt so, so hurt. hurt right yeah um, but yeah, I don't know where else, what else I was going to say about that. I had to, one more thing about that jousting. Um, oh, anyway, I lost it. No, no worries. It might come back. Um, the, the jou- I think the jousting, it's a very interesting word because, again, she's walked into this scenario like like all horny and, like, you know, mm. she's... She, like, there's this kind of, like, sexual tension there that I think he's buying into as well. Um, I think he's buying into it. He's just playing it super, super cool. And she's mm. just... She's just, like like engaged in this kind of banter whilst being incredibly hurt but at the same time like she's literally just left the bedroom where her and Silvera have been like fucking and she's been using a cowboy pillow as a dick substitute uh, in their bedroom for their like kind of fantasy foreplay so I think maybe it's a it's another kind of like weird erotica kind of playing out in the wrong way um Mm -hmm. Yes. This, so this I is this is what I was gonna. Yeah, this yeah, is what I was gonna say back. about this. Yeah, I got it back. Yeah, this, it was back to this idea of coolness. So like, mm-hmm. exactly what you're saying. So like, when he touches, she touches his hair. It, I I take his reaction almost like. Like yes, I'm playing the same game with you, but that's not a cool way to play that game. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, and I feel like this is. I, th- I think I keep coming back to coolness because I think that's like a really important part about how they engage. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, so I, th- I think I talked a little bit about that last time about Dick's kind of like denim armor and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like she clearly can see through certain things that are not, tra- that he's not used to them being transparent. And mm-hmm. um, ju- just how quickly, immediately, she can she can put a knife back in him without knowing anything. She just looks at the brick and is like, what the fuck is this? Oh, well, you know perfection. And then, oh, I see this date. Like, you haven't done anything in a while. Like, she's just so quick to, like, weaponize insecurities <laughs> on him. And he's like, oh, fuck. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But... It, it, <sighs> I think a part of that previous episode scene where she lists the female filmmakers ties into all these things we're talking about, which is that it isn't his thing, but that that's something that he doesn't have a problem with. And she's like, you should have a problem with that. Like mm-hmm. you, you, you're projecting yourself as this epitome of cool. Like I keep thinking of the Marlboro man, like, this rugged Western ideal of like exploring the frontier alone, 
smoking mm-hmm. a cigarette in denim with a cowboy hat on and mm-hmm. how basically how incredibly powerful that image is I, i'm not sure how powerful it is outside of the america but like god oh, damn that is still, like yeah it's still potent as fuck yeah, yeah that yeah. that image has given like millions of people lung cancer i mean it's it's incredibly that's powerful powerful right and and yet she's like she's incredibly uncool in her her ranting her anxiety and all that but that is a frontier that's a real frontier that she's exploring whereas his explorations are not there there's nothing real about them it's it's such a it's such a projection of authenticity but completely inauthentic foundations to it and i think when she retorts the list of female filmmakers she's schooling him on what is actually cool like her her deep sense of no you're fucking wrong this shit is fucking cool really can't comes through to me in those instances like that that to me is when she's the most confident and the most assertive and most um powerful is like that she fucking knows what's cool well said i i also i also think that there is something there's something difficult with cool because cool is about um like the most people agreeing on something completely intangible mm-hmm. um and usually that's usually that's just a big giant default oh completely yeah for sure <laughs> for sure for sure and and again like this is uh, forcing me to reflect on myself a lot and thinking about the times that i've used like wanted to be cool or tried to be cool or tried to project coolness in ways and what was going on with that and what sort of insecurities that was that was trying to mask over um Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like how as time has gone on coolness the idea of coolness has shifted from something I like like I'm like well I'm like in awe of to uh, wow this is like a much often more sad thing and um, mm-hmm. more more of a, a transparent like bandaging over of wounds or, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I have that too. I, um, I have an inability to watch a lot of mainstream films without feeling um, like kind of sad afterwards. So for example, um, after watching I Love Dick, I watched, um, what is it called? Silver Linings Playbook mm-hmm. with uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper. Mm-hmm. And that it's a, just an example of a mainstream Oscar winning film that does the, that kind of manipulates you to feel particular things at particular arcs in the movie. Um, and then you you know i left the film going oh this is you know this is such a feel-good film and i you know i should there are certain things i should want in order to feel like this in my life at the same time feeling the complete dissonance of this is a really terrible representation of mental illness and it's a really terrible representation of like the support structures and networks around people who are experiencing 
this. It's mm-hmm. a really mm-hmm. so so the the feel good feelings just sit in opposition to how I actually think about the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my viewing experiences are kind of I, I see maybe sit in relation to what you're saying about coolness where there's sort of something quite sad about like or uncomfortable about recognizing that these kind of pinnacles of happiness that are presented to us mm-hmm. actually are very hollow and mm-hmm. when you start to try and embody the reality of that dissonance it, you know it can be quite painful i think mm-hmm yeah yeah i think about that a lot in relation to architecture too where the veneer is what's important to so many people and um i mean it's very powerful like like you're saying Mm -hmm. like it it can be very overwhelmingly convincing at times and it's only through sort of experiencing the hollowness and the, the what's behind that veneer that um start to chip away at that yeah can i ask you a little bit more about um architecture actually sure because i've got a a note through here where where chris is walking into the marfa institute where they're Mm -hmm. you know to go and take dick's class and she is fucking dwarfed by the architecture by the doors she she literally cannot properly open the doors like that that space is not for her body it's not really for the human body and i just was i was just i wondered if that was something that you clocked as you were watching the episode it's so funny you say that it's so (laughs) because she opens two doors so she opens this fucking 30 foot tall glass door first i'm like wow that door is balanced well because she's opening that that door must weigh five thousand pounds and she's opening that pretty easily (laughs) but then she gets to the steel roller door the like the industrial door yeah exactly and she's just like she's just beginning of her extreme awkwardness in that space um yeah that building i think is i don't do we see it from the outside i think that's I think that's a Donald Judd. Right. So it's an artwork that's been building. building. I think he I think he designed that building. Yeah. Um and he when it first opened it, it, it displayed in it were just like, you know, a bunch of cube basically the brick. There were a bunch yeah, of okay. cubes in there. That was it. That's um, so funny. That's so funny because he is obviously you know an artist of the era of which we are talking about which is that kind of you know uh, abstract expressionism kind of era yes and when i i thought that was a really cool building when i was in architecture school like Mm -hmm. very simple rational art gallery and i'm actually so now that I'm seeing this again, like I'm, I'm seeing it from a different place. And what was cool to me then is not now. And like, I'm actually, I'm actually seeing this a lot from like Chris's perspective where she walks over to that window and is looking at the bluffs in the distance, mm-hmm. like, which, yeah, I, I really like that little, that little glimpse into, I don't, I don't know if she was, if she was, intentionally being sort of contrarian to what the other students were doing but like yeah that i I don't know i I related to that sort of like 
Yeah. Yeah, I liked that moment too. Um, again, I'm similarly to you. I wasn't quite sure if she was doing it to be facetious. Yeah. Or like what? Uh, like it obviously, you know, it obviously pulled Dick in because he wandered over. Um, but I, I think the thing that I liked about it is that the the landscape is such a big character within the the TV show itself. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and there is something about the you know the natural world and the outside being inside this gallery in some respects through mm-hmm. you know the the vantage points in the windows. Um, but I. I often find that these art institutions are not designed for the body. They're mm-hmm. designed for a particular idea of art. They're often yes. inaccessible to anyone who's not able-bodied. Um, yes. They can be difficult spaces if you've got any kind of neurodiversity. <laughs> Actually, yes. the, the buildings aren't made for people. So it was just a, yeah, it was just, I thought that was another kind of interesting factor that they chose totally, to really show totally. that space in that way. And, and I think it ties into this idea of coolness too, where it's like, it's taking sort of this like gritty factory repurposed space to be an art gallery aesthetic that, that carried its own sort of like punk connotations mm-hmm. and is now in this like, super wealthy like it's like an institute you know and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i don't know how how no it's like it's like everything um like yeah. something that is really avant-garde eventually becomes like the oppressive yeah. bourgeois yeah. It's, totally. it's it's an inescapable gentrification of culture um totally. that happens to our spaces and our galleries and our clothes and our lifestyles and our communities um you know, there's, there's, you know, we could talk about degrowth for hours, I'm sure, but there, you know, there is sort of a, a way of, we have an, a way of understanding progression that I think is kind of inherently really unhealthy. <laughs> mm. Um, mm. I wanted to check in with you about, um, the creators of the, this episode, because the director is different from the pilot. Mm-hmm. So this director is Kimberly Pierce, who her kind of big film was Boys Don't Cry from 1999, mm-hmm. um, which was just a an incredible look at um, transgender and transgender and sort of violence politics. Um, mm-hmm. And she did the remake of Carrie in 2013 as well, which mm, is also I didn't a, see that. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you seen the original? I have, yeah. Okay, so again, it's a. It, I I don't actually recall it being like hugely different. It's still kind of, there's still a lot of blood and still kind of tackles, tackles kind of the feminine monstrous in a particular way. Um, but I li- I really liked the background that she was bringing to this. So I, I think that, um, mm-hmm. I think that Kimberly Pierce is very, very interested in violence and war. So I was trying to kind of think about this episode through, cool. through that lens again. Yeah, and lovely. I think that there's quite a lot of, um, it might have been a natural fit because there's a lot more kind of open conflict in this episode. It's not like, it's not kind of like a physical violence, but you definitely see the intellectual, emotional and social violences going on in this episode. Um, and I've been thinking a bit about the, the writer who kind of co-produced all of these episodes with um, Joey Soloway. So this is Sarah Gubbins. 
Yep. And I couldn't find a huge amount about Sarah Gubbins kind of like personal manifestos. Um, but I did come across a really interesting article on The Conversation a couple of mornings ago just by happenstance about um, there's a new there's a new kind of mini-series, I think it's maybe a four or five-parter on the um, Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee Jones, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, Tommy Lee's um, sex tape. Yep. Yep. Um, so Sarah Gubbins was involved in this and it was being touted as kind of a, you know, a feminist take on um, sort of, you know, the, the, the trauma of, of being kind of made visible and being... Um, yeah, basically, basically the trauma mm-hmm. of this this kind of episode and particularly Pamela Anderson's life. But this article in the conversation, I have to, I, I can't remember who wrote it, I'll have to look it up, um, was actually talking about the, they were saying don't watch this show, do not watch this show because it actually continues the exploitation of Pamela Anderson. Ella mm. Anderson wasn't, um, wasn't, and get like wasn't invited to participate in this whatsoever so it's mm-hmm. a re-exploitation of her but also it's a resurfacing of the sex tape because people want to see the sex tape mm-hmm. uh the original version so it's being hunted down and and, and it's resurfacing mm. in the internet world um and not only that the sex tape is remade by the folk who have made the mm-hmm. miniseries so it's just a re uh, kind of the the basically the um the article was saying that it actually goes against the values some of, the, some of these the, outcomes are yeah yeah, yeah counter to mm-hmm. exactly exactly so i just thought that that was i thought that was just a bit of interesting context around the making i love it cat fuck i love the, i love your <laughs> your detective instincts on these things like uh, <laughs> i i am a a beginner detective because I have the same sort of instincts, but I don't get nearly as far with them. Um, I, I looked up the episode directors too, because I remember like there's one episode I know that's coming that I remember particularly well. And I wanted to see who directed that. And mm-hmm. the person who directed that has also directed some other things. That I, she, I think that person directs four episodes of this, of the eight. Oh, and interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of the other things they've directed are really high quality as well. So okay, I'm excited I'm sure to, I'm excited. To <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to track. I, I, I remember when I first realized that, that each, that series were not directed by the same person every time. And like, mm-hmm. it's fascinating just to, I think, especially in this case, to see how these different voices of the directors are coming through. And I think you did a fucking awesome job breaking that one down. Um, <laughs> I also Thank looked you. at Sarah Gubbins and found some theater stuff and like, I was like, yeah, I there's not that much out here, but, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's sort of like a cursory glance. Um, it really was just because I came across that article and I was like, I knew that Sarah Gubbins had been involved in the Pamela Anderson and Tommy Lee miniseries, but I think, I think again, it's just trying to figure out what the politics are of the people who are making the things that we are consuming so that we're not just consuming them passively but we've got a sense of why they're being made and what the person who's making them is trying to enact in the world um i love it yeah i think it's super important it's super important because then it's it's active viewing and you can make choices around how you're viewing 
and, 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 and in some ways start to counteract that sense of dissonance that I often feel. Um, I'm just trying to see what else I've got in my notes. I wrote a shit ton. Yeah. Yeah. There's a quote from the book uh, that I pulled out. All I have is two words, formidably informed. Ooh. Which I think ties in nicely to what you're saying there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, but also um, there is a something I've been toying with in my own work at the moment and research is uh, feels more complicated than it probably is to speak about. Um, the importance of, of not knowing being a very valid position to take. Yeah. Um, being formidably informed is useful, but also being able to take that position of not knowing and engage with something from a place of just the experience that you're having in the moment, I think is equally as valid. Um, I guess that also has something to do with maybe feeling like, like it's difficult to keep up. Like often when I go to academic talks, mm -hmm. um, it can be very easy to feel like this isn't for me, again, mm -hmm. an audience issue. I don't mm -hmm. know enough about this to engage with it at this level. Um, mm -hmm. I, how can I possibly catch up enough to be able to understand what this expert is saying? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you know that actually it's okay to be a beginner. I think we often feel quite difficult in those beginner spaces. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and conversely, at the same time, there is this argument for, well, shit should be more accessible in terms of like ideas. Um, but also, I think that there needs to be room for, if someone has spent 10 years thinking about something, they need to have the room to be able to have those really nuanced conversations. Mm. Um, so I think maybe it's more mm -hmm. about allowing for there be, to be different entry points and mm -hmm. not expect there to just be one speed that we, we mm -hmm. take information in. But yeah, formidably informed. That is a, mm -hmm. that's a mm -hmm. very good, very good phrase. Yeah, no, it's, it's a good, I, I think, I, at some point, Sony said something similar about you um, to that phrase. And it's interesting to hear your thoughts ab about feeling um, overwhelmed or like uh, underprepared in certain art spheres. Um, mm -hmm. Because I feel, I feel the same way in architecture too, in that like there are so many different ways you can go as an architect and even though you know it's the different it's the it's the different gazes and different lenses so like i i can inhabit a lens where like i'm so grateful and excited about the path that i've taken and really feel lucky to be able to know what i know and be able to kind of get the projects done that I that that feel like a really strong embodiment of things that I value and I think that's really rare uh, for architecture that that a lot of people kind of get caught in this sort of co cookie cutter default path thing mm -hmm. at the same time I'm completely capable of breaking out into a fucking cold sweat because like I'm in a room <laughs> with people who are on this default path and know inside out things that I'm like fuck, I don't know what that term means, or I've never done that. Like, it, it, and it's really like challenging yeah. to, to, 
to to feel like well i'm supposed to be in a so i'm just, I, I what kind of architect am i like i don't know that fucking word like i don't know what the type of house mm-hmm. that shit is i think that there is a real fragility to certainty yeah um and it took me a long time to come to terms with that that actually thinking that you know all the answers leaves you wide open and vulnerable um to just being a complete asshole so, <laughs> so actually yeah. inhabiting those spaces of of not knowing and uncertainty and and being confident in your expertise but being open to not knowing everything i think is probably you know a more nimble mm-hmm. space to operate mm. from professionally and personally i mm-hmm. um I had this huge stumbling block as a, as a child where I wouldn't do anything if I didn't think I knew how to do it first or if I didn't think I was going to be successful. Yeah. Um, and like we're talking roller skating classes, we're talking horse riding, we're yeah. talking yeah. anything. I just, I was a real hangback, not going to do it unless I feel 100% certain that I'm going to be cool with this. Um, so that's been a lifetime's worth of unpicking and I'm still doing it, I think. Um, and I still can't roller skate for shit. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think if my mom was listening to this conversation, she'd be like, wow, that sounds exactly like you. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I wanted to ask you about your art practice in relation to that, because I feel like for me, I've, I've this process of undoing that and, and cultivating a uh, comfort in a beginner's mindset mm-hmm. has <clears throat> like, I've really had to kind of force the issue with that, like force myself to confront the feelings that were pushing me away from um, dealing with the fear, I think is what it essentially boils down to. Okay. Um, and so like, you mentioned roller skating for me, it was like snowboarding. It was like, I went to, you know, I lived in a town where like everybody was like a fucking Olympic snow sport athlete. And like, there's no fucking way I'm going to go up on this hill and just demolish myself and make a fool of myself learning this. So it was only in my twenties that I decided like, okay, I'm going to, I want to do this and I'm going to do whatever. I need to do to, to do that, to face this. And like, I feel similarly with art, like it's, it's so reveal it's such a revealing process about where my insecurities still are and where those, those sensitive points of fear still are. Um, so I was, I was, I'm trying to th- map out your transition from where you were as a, you know, eight year old to where you've gotten now and what you've used to, unravel that kind of shield of um i don't even know if i have this is the thing like um because i'm i still have various layers of fear that get revealed to me over and over again I, i think that that's a really good way of describing it kyle um sometimes i have fear around am i an artist if i'm not making work um, or if I'm making different kinds of work, or am I an artist if I don't want the things that I wanted as an artist 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Um, 
what does it mean to remake being an artist? And it's, t it's taken me a really long time to get to the point of even being able to ask those questions because it's to do with the certainty thing, right? Um, uh, you know, I'm certain that this is how you go about being an artist. You take this particular trajectory and you show this way and you aim for X, Y, and Z. But I realized that as I met each of those um, milestones in that trajectory, it was as if I hadn't done it. Uh -huh. It was as if like, the milestones didn't feel like anything, even uh -huh. though they looked great on a CV. Uh -huh. So I think maybe the drive was to feel differently about the process and the practice and the journey and what it meant, um, which is kind of, I imagine, maybe similar to the snowboarding thing ever so slightly. Like you make a decision that you, you want to do something because you want to you feel a different way about it um yeah i don't know if that gets like kind of close to what you're asking i think so yeah i mean it, to me what you're saying sounds like you've you're you've you've been able to like transition away from um yeah like a, a more rigid certain um sense of things that are externally validated to a mm more uh sensitive ability to kind of make sense of what's happening inside yourself and do you know what i got really fucking tired of having experiences like both the chris krauss character and the formalist feminist character in the i love dick episode i got really fucking sick of having those experiences and um in order to not have those experiences it's meant a stepping away and a reconfiguring how this art world career life uh -huh. works when you refuse to engage with that stuff anymore. Um, and in some ways uh -huh. that actually means to refuse visibility um, uh -huh. in particular ways. I don't really know how I feel about it yet because I'm very much in the midst of it. Like I don't I know. You. Yeah. I, I don't know how, um, I can say one thing, like letting go of certainty is a very uncomfortable space to be in. So not knowing what the, what the direct path is or what the way forward is, is it's very, very uncomfortable. But I think at, I think at the very, very least, when I do reach certain milestones, sometimes they're a surprise, but they always feel like something. They always feel significant or have some kind of significance rather than a box ticking exercise that was just mm -hmm, stressful mm -hmm. and traumatic. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah. Ugh. <laughs> 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 um, yeah. I don't know what else to say on that. <laughs> Thanks, Carl. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, it is, you're right. It is It is still, like, even even what you're saying is, is a very important thing, which is, like, it's not as if um, there's a shift where you see things differently and you, you start conquering fears and you're on this linear trajectory of... Um, shit stops feeling uncomfortable or hard um yeah but uh, you know back to your muscle analogy of 
being able to watch a difficult film, it's it's similar. Like you you've 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 acclimatized to a level of discomfort that you were maybe more fragile to before, and um, being able to sort of exist in that discomfort means that 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 extra time of being able to exist in that discomfort lets doors that are maybe a little bit slower to open be possibilities you know um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah 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 i think that's well said um there is a certain amount of letting go of ego and expectations it's really difficult and there's all this i mean the, there's so much of the art world as with any profession that's ego driven um and i don't really know what like how to manage when you don't want to be visible in the way that you know particularly as a woman i don't want to be visible in the way that uh i'm supposed to be visible i don't want to be visible in a tits and ass kind of way um but i also don't want to be visible in the way where i'm getting crushed because i want to talk about something that i know about um mm-hmm. so there's yeah there is a mm-hmm. there is definitely a tension of, of visibilities um you know, and what I do, which is why I love Dick is so achingly painful to watch. <laughs> it's so, so cringy. Um, and so, mm-hmm. so wonderful to have the difficulties reflected back to me in a format that's digestible and means that we can talk about this. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally. I, I think I think another a fl- sort of the flip side to this is like um, <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about visibility as well. And like, you know, there's a lot in the book about like uh, I'm going to read a line here. Uh, let's see if I can find it about um, being public. That I think. OK, here, here we go. Um, this is maybe a little bit of a paraphrase, but I fuse my silence with the entire female gender's silence. Talking, being, paradoxical, inexplicable, flip, self-destructive, but of all else, above all else, public is the most revolutionary thing in the world. And I wanted to ask you about this too, because in addition to sort of the growth we've been talking about in terms of like being comfortable with the uncomfortable or, or inching more towards being comfortable with the uncomfortable. Like it's easy for me to take on somebody I admire's entire viewpoint of the world and think, Oh, I, I should just be exactly like this person. Right. And, and so, <laughs> so I'm reading this. I'm like, I'm always very like inspired by the things she's talking about and then the, you know, hunger strike in Guatemala and all these things. And they're really like, I'm, I'm also aware of who I am and how my, you know, maybe, maybe in parallel to Chris, like her, goal of being a filmmaker actually she was flexible enough to morph into what she was maybe more well suited for yeah. which was writing um you know yep. I, I hey chicken <laughs> hey squirrels 
Do you see him back there? Yeah, I can. He's so cute. <laughs> Little tail. He's on um, high alert. You guys are going to yeah. have a squirrel-free zone. No squirrels are getting through that doorway. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great, bud. Um, I think an equal... I guess what I'm getting at is I think an equal part of that of that growth for me is like realizing that it's okay to not be those people it's okay to like read this and see like wow visibility and publicness yeah okay i do get how why that's important and why like advocating for certain perspectives like donna donna haraway says like you got to be for certain things and against other things like when it comes down to it and but also not completely throwing out everything I know about myself in the process, you know, mm-hmm. like trying to fit that into my sense of self in a more um, forgiving way than, oh, everything I've been doing is wrong. I need to do it <laughs> exactly like this person is doing it, which I haven't had a tendency to do in the past. Maybe something that's really helpful when reading this particular book in, in, in relation to what you're saying is to think a little bit more about there is a gap between the writer Chris and the narrator Chris and then she creates other gaps in the book as well by using third person speaking outside of herself like she makes quite explicit that there is a fictional element to the autobiographical mm-hmm. um And I think it's really useful to think about this in terms of other people's writing as well, is that even if you're reading a memoir, there is still a gap between, even as infinitesimal as it might be, a gap between what has been written and the person who has written it. Um, You can't can't help but sort of fictionalize in some way, Um, which I think is, I think is problematizes um, personal accounts that start that that sort of starts to get into really icky territory when we're talking about testimony, um, mm-hmm. as well. But I think it's useful to sort of consider narrative frameworks in that way. I mean, I've certainly found it useful because um, I I mean I find it I find it sometimes quite horrific how revealing Chris is. Um, and I find it difficult to be revealing in my own work. Mm-hmm. Um, just as it is very easy to think, oh, I wish I was more like that, or I could, you know, I could be that fearless. But when I realize a little bit, well, I think a little bit more about the construction of it, it m- makes it easier for me to find my way, my way through it because it is a mm. construction at the end of mm. the day. Um, totally. I, I, I also, yeah. We, we we choose what truth we take from it. I think I think is what I was going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 the Rashomon, like flipping points of view idea, um, not only applying that to external people's perspectives, but like the different selves that you can inhabit as well, and how you know, oneself can be like fucking dominant and being like, okay, we're going to do things this way. But yeah, just to, just to, um, like you're saying that there's space between the narrator and the person. Similarly, there's space between this, 
very real feeling I'm feeling and the conglomeration of all the different selves that feel all these different things within me. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. 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 I'm completely with you. I sort of, I'm trying to get together my thoughts around this very idea, um, the gap between the author and the narrator, but also the, this idea of a split or plural self and what happens when you start combining that with other people's voices and plural authorship. So you and I do a lot of plural authorship, um, mm-hmm. which, which is kind of the, the borrowing and folding in of other voices into your own voice, often, often in the desire to kind of enact some kind of socio-ethical kind of uh, like writing or creation. So you're not wanting to misappropriate, but the problem is that by being wanting to include lots of different voices into your own in order to be an ethical creator, you often risk misappropriating in the effort to be ethical. Mm. So it's this kind of this is circular, um, circular mm-hmm. desire of narration and self-narrating and co-narrating um, that feels very complicated to me. But I'm sure that once I spend a bit more time with it. I'll start to unpick it a bit more in my head and through writing and through practice. But um, I, I, something that doesn't come across in the TV series is it does come across in the book is that Chris is always talking about theorists and, and artists and other people's uh-huh. ideas. And, you know, you uh-huh. get the sense of her like really thinking with and through other people um, uh-huh. that I don't think is the remit of the TV show at all. Um, it's more concerned with the female gaze than I think it is concerned with kind of um, an engagement with how Chris engages with theory. Um, it's more, more uses theory as a parody, I think. Like when Dick says, I'm post-idea. <laughs> so there's like, ooh, what is that? <laughs> yeah, like, what the fuck? <laughs> he hasn't read a book in 10 years. <laughs> God, imagine not having to read a book for 10 years because you've created a framework for yourself by which you have justified not reading or taking in anyone else's ideas. Yeah. It's it's kind of fascinating, isn't it? Seductive. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, that seems like a good session. I'm not sure if you have anything else on your list you want to cover because I I have things on my list that I'm like ah well this we got like six more episodes so I'm sure you can fold that stuff back in yeah (laughs) yeah yeah no I'm good too I thought that that was um that was really fun and went some places that I really yeah I found surprising and didn't expect so yeah your fucking research was kick-ass too and super exciting to uh, get to get to absorb so thanks man it's always a pleasure Holy shit, you made it to the end. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to Thinking With. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to be updated on the next season. A five-star rating and review will help get our stories out to more people. Thank you so much.